0: presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises and institutions. On today's episode, we offer part one of a discussion regarding universal design with Eric Perrier and Dominic Yakabuchi of BHDP. If you enjoy what you hear, we encourage you to rate, subscribe and give us a review. We also invite your suggestions of other architectural and interior design-related topics. I am your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist from BHDP. Let's get started.
1: Hello, Dominic. Would you please introduce yourself? Uh, hello, this is Dominic Iacobucci.
2: I'm a client leader and owner here at BHDP Architecture. And Eric? Yeah, hi, I'm Eric Puryear. I'm a senior architect here in the workplace studio at uh, BHDP.
0: Well thank you both for being here and I'm gonna start with the biggest question that I have, what is universal design? Mm-hmm. So Eric, would you like to
2: tackle that for sure, us? Sure, I can t- take a, I think it's, it's really a pretty easy concept to think about. Uh, universal design really is a process about designing environments for everyone. So think about it in uh, the terms of accommodation That's a term that I think uh, suggests that we're providing something for someone. Whereas universal design uh, tries to provide good design or better design that everyone can use. That's you and me and and anybody with a particular uh, special requirement.
0: So when I first I hear that I hear accommodations and I think of ADA, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act that you know makes special provisions for people in wheelchairs and things. How is this different than that?
2: Well, it's not really different. Uh, It's really, uh, well, it's pretty part and parcel with the ADA. This is um, intended to provide a perspective for universal design practices around the world, not necessarily just uh, something that's relevant to the United States. Um, The ADA uh, was uh, passed into law in 1994, and it's really a civil rights law that prevents uh, discrimination against people with uh, disabilities. And given that, it's really a natural Uh, predecessor to the Civil Rights Act that occurred in 1964. So it began to regulate that in in our environments that we cannot discriminate against people with physical disabilities. What universal design does, however, is it begins to build on that and beyond that. What what I think people began to recognize is that we were developing a two-class system within our built environment and with our product development. We provide a certain set of accommodations for people that met certain requirements, but uh, they were always separate. There might have been something over to the side that met the letter of the law, but uh, Universal Design tries to set up a framework where that is eliminates that uh, sort of doubling of the effort, so to speak, in our built environment and provides solutions that's usable for everyone.
0: That's a great answer. Now, because what I think of when I think of ADA design, I think of our own lobby. The very first thing that comes to mind is the entry sequence to any building. You know, if you spent any time in Europe or New York, sometimes you see buildings that say, hey, if you're in a wheelchair, good luck getting in here. You know, because there's stairs that lead up to the doorway and stuff like that. In our building in particular, if you come in on the ground floor, there's stairs to the elevator. Um, so if you're in a wheelchair or if you um, have that difficulty, then the machine that gets you to the elevator is this claptrap-looking uh, device that just looks like it came from the 1950s and could catch on fire at mm-hmm. any moment. So is universal design breaking down that, that entry sequence? Like,
2: no, I think that um, what you're describing is should be regulated by the ADA. What universal design would add to that is say you're walking in with a group and uh, one of your friends is in a wheelchair yeah. or has even sprained their ankle and so they're walking with uh, you know, a pair of crutches, for example, right. and you enter a space like our lobby that has that, uh, that route to get to the elevators, they might have to break off and uh, leave the conversation that you're having about the lunch that you just had while you ha- your group heads up the stairs and they have to take the elevator or the accommodated thing. That's where Universal Design uh, raises a hand and says, hey, hold on. That's uh, not providing equal accommodation to everyone. We've got now a separate path into the building for someone and so now they're feeling excluded. So they want designers to think about that and think how do you uh, provide a journey that's the same for everyone into the building and into the- into uh, the workplace. Yeah, I think that's key. It's really about equality, yeah.
1: hence the word universal. Uh, and it's thinking about all people in all situations and Eric kind of started to get into it, but it's it's people that are dealing with some situations that are, are permanent um, and maybe physical, but don't necessarily need to be physical, but it's also dealing with temporary situations. So when you start talking about the person that may have a sprained ankle, is an example of a temporary situation um, that someone's dealing with, but it could just as easily be someone that's trying to carry something into the building for the day or it could be someone that's uh, trying to take something away. So it's not not all about just physical traits, which when you look at most of ADA, ADA is setting a guideline on meeting a minimum standard for physical disabilities. Yeah, that minimum standard, that... That sounds right. Because what I hear
0: now is when I think of ADA, it's about how do we create an entry point for everyone, but that has to be separate. It sounds like universal design is trying to create an experience for everyone. That way, everybody has a shared experience on that entry to the building, right? Is that, or is that a? I wouldn't say it's
1: necessarily purely about experience. I think that that's true in some way. Um, I think it's about looking at all human beings as important, and that all of humans should have the same rights and abilities to uh, experience to a certain
2: extent, but just even to engage. And I think to add to that, I think it, it's really also about a perspective. It's a perspective for us as designers of how we approach solutions. And you mentioned it just a minute ago, where you said that, okay, ADA provides just, it tells us what the minimum requirement is. Yeah. And uh, statistics have shown that those minimum requirements are the average, which means what, 50% of the people are accommodated. There's a wide range of wheelchairs, uh, for example, that uh, the mean average turning radius for that is 60 inches and that's what's regulated by the federal mandate. However, research shows that just by increasing that clear floor area by about six inches, that number jumps to 75%. So that's an understanding that we're gonna have that rather than meeting uh, and ticking off uh, the minimum requirements that if we approach it with a perspective that, hey, let's be smart designers and provide the best design we can, uh, with that perspective, we can provide that. And that's just one example, I think. But I think that it's it's really a challenge and an opportunity to provide good design. But it's predicated by the fact that we want it to include everyone. I could add to that too that uh, when we talk about accommodation and if we keep with the the idea that we're comparing this to ADA, I mean I think ADA requires in a restroom for example that we attach uh, grab bars in a particular size and configuration and that we have toilets that are a certain height and then there's door swings that are of a certain uh, direction and clearance, and it, it lists, There's a whole range of uh, requirements that us as designers are required to, to uh, meet. Right. However, if you begin to look at this with a designer's eye, you begin to see specific uh, solutions just being applied over finishes and systems. They are truly what you might call just an accommodation. They're not good design. Right. They meet a need. But I think that what universal design challenges us as designers to do is provide those good designs that, are, that begin to blend into the overall design and become invisible. What that might mean is, it, I could use an example, is uh, sometimes designers are excited to use you know, some interesting contrasting patterns to floor or tile systems, for example. What we aren't always aware of is that there's a lot of people who have some who are visually impaired who still have some form of vision and they rely on that, the light and dark, right. the patterns to navigate space. And just by uh, entering a space that's full of eclectic or random wild patterns, they lose that ability to orient and navigate. We've taken that away from that. But by approaching that in a smart fashion and being aware of that, Uh, having that perspective, we can add clarity to that space without detracting from the design. And we've seen that in our work, I think. We've talked about this and we've tried to provide solutions for that. And it can be a simple matter of like, you choose that one wall that provides the dynamic graphic design or artwork in contrast to a neutral environment. And then uh, what that does is that creates a real clear navigable map for a person who's visually impaired in a space. They can work that as a uh, point of orientation in a room, for example. That's a really fascinating
0: perspective. Um, How did you get involved yourself in universal? Like what drew you to
1: universal design? Do you want to oh, yeah, I'll answer that in a, que- a second. Let me let me go back to something that Eric was talking sure, about. Sure, yeah. Because um, I think it gives you more perspective on why universal design is has a term universal. So when you talk about the restroom, for instance, in the restroom situation, a lot of times when we're talking about restrooms, we're talking about, we, we talk about the site, but we tep- typically talk about mobility more than anything else. Right. The reality is, is if we're starting to really talk about universal design, the restroom is probably one of the spaces that creates the most angst for most of the population. And it could be that they've got irritable bowel syndrome, it could be that they've got they're just not feeling all great that day, it could be that they have anxiety issues, <sighs> that you know, fear of being around other people, all these different things that none of us ever talk about and none of us ever really address. Typically, when we're doing bathrooms, we're doing bathrooms to make sure that they're easy to clean and that they're, they accommodate ADA. But we're never really saying, well, what should the experience be for people using it and how do we want it to be? Now, in Europe, I'd say that they do a lot better here than the United States, because the United States, we default to um, cheap and easily to clean. Right, Hoseable but, surfaces. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, but that's but that's where it starts to bring this idea of universal to another level that I think we can all relate to and we probably take for granted um, and don't even think about. But we all know someone or know of an instance where that's been a situation. So one of the things that we've talked about when we start talking about a universal design bathroom, when you when you even go to ADA and some people with disabilities what happens if they have an accident? Like how do you have a location where they can digni- they can have the dignity to clean themselves up, where they can have the dignity to deal with something that's happening with them that day? And that could be anybody for all sorts of different situations, right? Those are the things that aren't considered that we're starting to consider with universal design. Uh-huh. Um but back to your original question, what brings this up and why is this important to us? I think as a people-centric design firm, we're always interested in designing the best that we can for all people. And we're constantly trying to figure out what that means from an experiential standpoint. Uh, what we found is we've got people like Eric that are passionate about this idea of universal design. And along that with that, we've got multiple clients, uh, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies that are trying to figure it out for themselves. And it's, it's this really, delicate balance of um, what is enough and what is acceptable and what's minimum and what should we do. Um, It's a perception just like a lot of other things that to really do it, it's really expensive. But the reality is, and, and I think Eric is alluding to this and even stating it, is it's just good design. Right. But good design's easy when you're starting from scratch. Good design is hard when you get into a retrofit situation.
2: Mm. Right. So that was really, frankly, the the stepping off point for me. I I got excited about universal design because it is good design. I was excited by the possibilities. As a architect who has worked in a range of uh, project types over the years, I've always been frustrated by simple accommodation. I feel like it's not good design. It... Um, can at times, uh, I felt frustrated that it was uh, contrary to good design. And I like the idea of developing a philosophy and an approach that uh, agrees to blend this into the big picture of good design. And as I started diving into it more and more, I got more excited about it because uh, on the outside of it, I thought it was something that would sort of offer a clear, path to solving the, you know, sort of frustrations that I had with the design part of it. But it uh, sort of opened up to me a full range of possibilities and um, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm not saying that I have exhausted any of this. It's an ongoing uh, learning experience for me as I delve deeper and deeper into it. Sure. but. Uh, I want to stress, too, that we're kind of talking about this really from a workplace design solution perspective. I want to say that I I think that uh, given that universal design was sort of established as a uh, design practice in the late 90s, I think 1997 was when the term was actually adopted, it's only just now beginning to reach the workplace where we're talking about it. It uh, primarily was explored, you know, throughout the early 2000s in hospitality venues. You know, we're talking about places that had to accommodate people with physical disabilities, like, um, you know, places that were like aging in place, uh, homes or um, hospitals. Those kind of places had a real need with a population that uh, needed some of these solutions to, uh, and a process to help provide solutions. But I think what we're seeing now is in the workplace that it's really kind of uh, points to the success of the ADA and the civil rights movement, is that we have generations of people who have, because of the ADA, have been able to attend school, graduate, get degrees, enter the workforce, and are now contributing uh, full-time in a workforce. In the same fashion we have people who uh, might become injured or develop a condition or develop a circumstance uh, in their careers that can be uh, accommodated in the workforce whereas prior to this there was no no means to provide that right so I think that it's really just a testament to the success of it I think we're uh, really frankly at the bleeding edge of this. And I think that's why I'm pretty excited about it is because we're the ones who are really developing these sort of approaches for the workplace that haven't been tested before. Interesting. So how, you said 1997
0: was when the phrase was coined, universal design, Uh, what has it been doing for the last 20 some years that it's not more popularized? Um, Because I don't hear about a lot of clients doing it myself um, but I I'm, I feel like it's starting to groundswell now. Why does, is it taking so long to adapt?
2: Well, I think that um, beginning in 1997, there was this understanding about we need to approach accommodation from a different perspective. It was the term was coined by Ron Mace, who's an architect uh, who wanted to sort of establish a framework for how we provide excellent design solutions for uh, people with various conditions or disabilities. Right. Since that time, I think there have been, there has been a lot of discussion about universal design. Uh, I want to say that there was an initial exhibition in um, the late 90s uh, at Cooper Hewitt that, Explored uh, product design uh, from the perspective of what might contribute to good design, to sure. what are these good solutions. There was another one that revisited this just this past year at Cooper Hewitt, where they came back to the same subject and uh, demonstrated product and, in this case, software development and tools oh. that sort of showed the broad range of this influence of this concept. Uh, I want to say also that there have been uh, sort of ongoing conversations within the design community about the subject. Uh, I think software designers like Microsoft is an example, has uh, spent quite a bit of time talking about this internally. They've developed sort of an approach that they have to uh, software development. How can it open up to, Uh, more people and that's just good business sense when you think about it I mean you've got a broad population out there that uses your tools Uh, why not provide something that uh, gives opens that product up to more people
0: yeah and then software is starting to become more integrated into the spaces that we use you um, so it it makes sense that that would eventually fold into that kind of universal design. Yeah. Right?
1: And Software is actually a big front right now on the idea of ADA and universal design. I think I uh, read the other day that there was over 5,000 lawsuits in the last six months associated with software or websites not being accessible. Really? Um, and I'd say if there is a front line of this conversation right now, it's definitely within software. And websites as opposed to physical space? Um,
2: Well, I think that that's true to some extent. I think that what we're finding is that actually in the workplace, that's where we're finding that there's not been a tremendous amount of conversation towards solutions. Uh, The University of Buffalo has a uh, department that's uh, run by Ed Steinfeld called ISUD, where they've, uh, or I'm sorry, that's, that's the term for their uh, a, an assessment tool that they've developed, but uh, they have an ongoing academic research arm that uh, talks about and supports uh, this conversation towards universal design and they've led the effort to publish um, what content is out there. Uh, I, there's, I think, two publications out there that I'm aware of that they have worked on. But again, like I, I mentioned earlier, the concept of universal design being applied to our, uh, the very specific challenges that we have in a workplace or an office environment, I want to say we're really at the bleeding edge of that. There's a lot of, there's a host of, of specific design challenges that we uh, need to work through for that environment that um, a residential uh, housing development isn't challenged with, for example.
0: So can you elaborate specific design challenges? Before we go there real quick,
1: um, you know what Eric's getting to is is real because the other stuff that's happening right now is there's lots of conversations and even in the UN, the UN has the International Labor Organization and this is kind of out of my, water so I can't speak too much to this (laughs) fair enough um but I know that they're having lots of dialogues about how you increase the workplace to be accessible even from just a labor job standpoint right Mm -hmm. so if you start talking about what does universal design mean for everybody how do you create space that they can work in and then how do you give them tools that they can work and give them the opportunity to um be a member of society on an equal footing. And the reality is is I believe that there's stats out there that there's, you know, some disabled people are even better in the workplace in terms of their dedication and their output than than able. And like I said, stats out of my range, but there's plenty of people that we can invite back that could speak to that Sure, very very much in full.
2: Absolutely, I mean, there have been studies done that show that perceptions of inclusion in the workplace have led to uh, job retention and uh, better productivity. Um, and then something else I want to add to that is that we're seeing uh, that we're being reached out to by uh, a lot of facility managers with questions about universal design and solutions uh, because uh, HR companies or our HR departments within companies uh, are confronted with a wide range of requests or um, concerns, sometimes lawsuits. And yeah. rather than dealing with individual instances of special need, special need or accommodation, yeah. Yeah. a toolkit or a perspective that gives them a means of addressing this across their portfolio. And uh, yeah. they call it you know getting out in front of it rather than reacting to something that's becoming a more frequent uh, request from people.
0: So universal design allows for a more proactive approach to any sort of special accommodations that... I mean, I feel it would be challenging to avoid all special accommodations, but... I think is the idea that this level of design, this good design, could uh, right. approach most of them, or
2: right? And I think that what uh, the research up to this point has done, or it's given us, is it's given us sort of uh, the lens through which to begin to approach the conversation of universal design. Uh, we've touched upon it in our conversation through here. You know, there's circulation, there's body fit, there's. Yeah. Uh, comfort. There's a whole range of of concepts that uh, could provide us sort of a roadmap to approach good design in a particular project, or in a toolkit or uh, kit of parts that a uh, company or entity can use to uh, provide you know accommodated designs in the workplace. Now, if that makes sense, it does. Do you have it? Did you want to add to that, Dominic? Or
0: that that was pretty good.
1: No, I think that was pretty good. I mean, I I agree with that. Um, I would say that accommodation decreases, right? The idea of universal design is that you're not creating accommodation for a single issue or use, but you're creating really good design that everyone can um, participate in.
2: Because, yeah, what that does is if someone comes to an HR. Uh, department or uh, speaks to the facility management with a particular problem and like, look, we have trouble uh, navigating a security turnstile, for example. Right. That give, They already have a procedure in place if they've gone through this exercise of doing a universal design review for their company uh, I guess what we would call their guidelines, that can react to that rather than being left unsupported to try to provide a solution on a piece by piece basis. And some of the Fortune 100 or even 500 companies that we work with have multiple campuses, multiple buildings around the world and it just gives them a baseline to agree to and say, look, our company, our company philosophy is built on this level of uh, providing uh, accommodation or inclusive, uh, you know, inclusivity in our company philosophy. So we want to establish that as a baseline in our company, which might exceed ADA. Eric, thank you for clarifying what drives corporations
0: to implement universal design. And thanks to you, the listener, for joining us at Trends and Tensions presented by BHTP for part one of this topic of universal design. We hope you'll join us again as we continue our constructive conversation on the next episode of Trends and Tensions. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review.